My first car was a 1995 beat-up baby blue Toyota Corolla. It was a real chick magnet, let me tell you. And by the time I got that car, it had been passed down from person to person in my family until it got to me. And when it got to me, my dad had already wrecked the car. The front bumper was hanging on by a thread. The thing had a glorified weed eater engine under the hood. I called that car the Little Blue Beast, but it was no beast. Let me tell you, that thing went zero to 60 in like 4.2 years, okay? <laughs> and then when you finally got over 60 miles an hour, the whole car vibrated so much that you got a full body massage going down the highway. It was great. <laughs> And in that 1995 Toyota Corolla, the check engine light was always on. Anybody else ever had a car like that? And I remember driving around, and every now and then I'd notice that light, and I'd think, huh, maybe I ought to do something about that. And then my impeccable teenage decision-making skills would kick in, and I'd say, ah, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Maybe later. Anybody else been there? Yeah. And I think that perhaps... That's how a lot of us are living. I think maybe some of you in the room today have a check engine light glowing on the dashboard of your heart. There's something in your life that's not quite right, and maybe you felt it, a whisper of conviction, a tinge of your conscience, maybe even a little bit of guilt. But but nobody enjoys hearing what's wrong with their lives, and so instead of pulling over and letting somebody look under the hood, when we see that check engine light, we just ignore it. Nah, nah. Maybe later, I'm good. We put a piece of tape over it so we don't have to look at it. Maybe we even pull a little hammer out of the glove box and smash it so we don't have to see that check engine light anymore. You know, there's a guy in the Bible who did that. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This guy's name is David. We talked about David last week. He was the king of Israel. The Bible tells us that David was a great king. He was a skilled musician. He was a mighty warrior. He was a great speaker, great leader. And things were going well in David's kingdom. The economy was booming. The borders were secure. By all appearances, David and his kingdom were at the height of their success. But scripture also tells us that the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And although things appeared to be good with David, David had some areas of neglect in his heart. You see, David had a lot of women. He had a whole bunch of wives. He had more concubines on top of that, and that was directly against the will of God. And by and large, most of the time, David was a man after God's own heart. But in David's heart, there was still a check engine light glowing, and he was ignoring it. By this point in David's life, he's about 50 years old. His kingdom is well established. He's earned the right to relax a little bit. He's got nothing left to prove. And so, so we come across David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So there's the problem. David should be out at war like the kings were supposed to be, but instead he decides to kick back and relax at home while the army goes out and fights battles without him. And so one beautiful springtime evening, David is lying there in bed. The drapes are open. The cool breeze is blowing in. The sun is sinking low down on the horizon. It's just perfect. Or so it seems. In reality, David would have been a lot safer in the battle than he was in that bedroom. And so David gets up from his bed and he decides to to head up to the porch and just take a little walk on on the top of the palace there overlooking the rest of the city. But David would have been a lot safer in a foxhole than he was on that porch. 
And David's just strolling around aimlessly, but idle hands are the devil's playground. And off in the distance, David hears some humming, some splashing. And just then, a warning light went off in David's heart, but he tried his best to ignore it. Nah, I'm good. Maybe later. And so David walks over to the edge of the palace roof and he looks down on the city below and there, the Bible pulls no punches, says he saw a woman bathing and she was a stunner, gorgeous. And another warning light goes off in David's mind, but he pushes it to the side. Nah, I'm good, maybe later. David had plenty of time to to bounce his eyes, to walk away, but instead he hesitates. My dad's always said, if you hesitate, you will contemplate. If you contemplate, you will negotiate. If you negotiate, you will participate. And if you participate, you will devastate. So don't hesitate. But David hesitates. And then he contemplates. He imagines what it would be like. His mind races, blinded by desire, inflamed by lust. And then he negotiates. He calls to one of his servants, hey, that that girl down there, who is she? Well, the servant looks down at the girl, looks back up at King David, remembers David's harem full of women and quickly sizes up the situation. And the servant responds, well, that's, that's Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, easy there, king. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. And more than that, if you look in David's story, we see that and through the names here, we know that David knows this girl's family. Bathsheba's dad and her husband are two of David's best warriors. Her grandfather is David's closest advisor. Wouldn't that be enough to stop him? The check engine light is glaring in the front of David's heart now, but he punches the dashboard, he shatters the light, and he says to his servant, bring her to me. And the Bible says, she came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. David uses her like an object to satisfy his cravings and then he sends her away like a worthless piece of meat and David thinks that it's all in the past now. Nobody will ever have to know but sin always comes to the surface one way or another and before long Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant and her husband is far away at war fighting David's battles. There's only one option for who the daddy is. And when Bathsheba tells David that she's pregnant, David has two options. Confess it or cover it. But David is so used to ignoring the check engine light by this point that the decision is easy. And so David calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, his old war buddy, to come back from the battle to Jerusalem. So Uriah leaves the front lines and he shows up at David's palace and David puts on a nice dinner. He says, so Uriah, tell me, how's the war going? And they talk. And David says, well, thanks for the update, Uriah. Say, why don't you go home, say hi to your wife before you head back to the front lines. You know what David's doing. He wants Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that then a few months later, they can all pretend like the baby belongs to Uriah. But Uriah refuses to go home. He sleeps on the steps of the palace. And when David asks him why, Uriah says, well, the whole army is out there sleeping in open country. How could I go to my own house and eat and sleep and make love to my wife? It wouldn't be right. So David has Uriah stay there at the palace another day. And this time David gets Uriah drunk, but still Uriah refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. Uriah has better morals drunk than David does sober. 
David is so blinded by paranoia at this point that he doesn't even see the warning light anymore as he hurriedly writes a letter to the general of the army saying, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is the fiercest and then have everybody step back so that Uriah will be killed. And he sends that letter to the general in Uriah's own hands. And just like David ordered, Uriah was killed in battle. As soon as David learns that Uriah is dead, he marries Bathsheba. Bathsheba gives birth to a child and the Bible simply says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David had plenty of chances along the way to stop, but every time he saw that check engine light, he thought, nah, I'm good. Just a little more. Maybe later. If you've ever kept a secret, you know how it gnaws at you. It eats you up from the inside out. And David lived in secrecy for the better part of a year, trying his best to ignore his sin, to pretend like the whole thing never happened. And so God sent a man named Nathan to confront David. And Nathan comes up and he tells David a story. He says, once there were two men living in the same town. One man was rich and the other man was poor. The rich man had lots of herds of cattle and flocks of sheep, but, but the poor man only had one little lamb. Oh, but he loved that lamb. He, he raised it like it was one of his children. That lamb ate from his plate and drank from his cup and he rocked it in his arms like it was his little girl. One day, a visitor came to the rich man's house and instead of killing an animal from his own flock to feed the visitor, the rich man stole the poor man's lamb and killed it to prepare a meal for his guest. Well, upon hearing this, David is just enraged and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And Nathan just looks at David and he says, you are that man. And it hits David and he's crushed. He realizes what he's done. He's ignored the check engine light for too long and now it's too late. All along, David's been saying, I'm good. And now God says, you're not good. You're guilty. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David replies with these simple but profound words. I've sinned against the Lord. I'm not good. I'm guilty. I am that man. You know, it's in the midst of failure that you learn a lot about a person's relationship with God. And instead of defending himself or blaming somebody else or downplaying his sin, David owns it. That's one of the things that made David a man after God's own heart, his willingness to humble himself and confess. Because, you know, just like David, it's a lot easier to see other people's sin, right? David heard the story of the rich man and the lamb, and he said, that guy's a sinner. He deserves to be punished. And it's easy for us to look around and say, well, well, he has a foul mouth, and she has a temper, and he cheats on his taxes, and she doesn't give at all, and he's lazy, and she's a nagging wife, and, and he's an apathetic father, and they don't have as high a holy moral standards as we do. It's easy to see other people's sin, but the message of Jesus isn't really about anybody else. It's about you. You're not good. You're guilty. You are that man. And David got so worked up about somebody else's sin that he ignored his own. And that's easy to do. As a minister working on staff here at the church, sometimes it's easy to see your sin. And we can spend our weeks uh, praying for you in your sin and counseling you in your sin and teaching you about how to beat your sin. It's easy to see your sin. Sometimes it's a lot harder to see my own. I've been thinking about this sermon for a few weeks 
And as I began to write it, I almost preached this sermon at you. I almost pointed my finger at you. I almost focused on exposing your sin. But then I was hit in the face with the reality of my own sinfulness. So today I'm preaching this sermon to me because I'm not good. I'm guilty. I am that man. The apostle John reminds us in 1 John chapter 1, verse eight, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we all in here wrote our autobiographies, every one of us would have a chapter entitled, Things I Should Not Have Done. <laughs> My dad says, if I knew the sin in your heart, I wouldn't want to talk to you. And if you knew the sin in my heart, you wouldn't want to listen. My guess is that everybody in this room, myself included, has a check engine light glowing on the dashboard of their hearts. You know where you've messed up. You know what you've been hiding or lying about or keeping a secret or trying to ignore. You know where you blew it this week. You know that you're not the person that you want to be yet. You know that at the end of the day, you're not good. You're guilty. We're all sinners. But we also all get to choose whether or not that sin enslaves us. Pastor Rick Warren has a great line about this. He says, you are only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. So what will you do with your sin? What will you do with your secrets? Confess them. And today, some of you in this room feel overwhelmed by the crushing power of secret sin. So you have a choice to stay in the sickness of your secret or to let God do surgery on your heart. We read 1 John 1, 8, but look at the verses bracketing that on either side, verse seven and verse nine. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because when you confess your sin, it loses its power. I have people in my life that I practice regular confession with. They know the dark parts of my heart. And when I drag my sin into the light, even though it's scary and it's hard and it hurts, that's when I become free. When I was in college, I started praying a dangerous prayer. I prayed, God, convict me of the sin that I do not see and bring me to confession. And God answered that prayer. I was reminded of times that I'd lied in years past and I had to go have awkward conversations with people about it. And I was reminded of how way back in high school I cheated my way through Spanish class. I've never been good at learning languages. I never have. So on the day of a Spanish test, I would write down all the Spanish verb conjugations on my arm, and then I'd wear long sleeve under armor to school. And during the test, I'd pull back my sleeve, look at the answer, write it down, and slip the sleeve back down. And then I was convicted that that was, how do you say, no bueno. <laughs> and so one day, I was out at a restaurant, and I happened to run into my high school Spanish teacher, and that check engine light went off in my heart. That check engine light, by the way, is also known as the Holy Spirit. And I had to go confess to her what I'd done. And it was awkward and it was weird and it was hard. But when I was done, I felt free. So today, you get to make the same choice that David did. Confess it or cover it. Look at what David chose to do here in Psalm 51. These are the words that David wrote after Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. And there's no text in the whole Bible that has been more influential for my personal spiritual development than this one. David says, have mercy on me, O God, 
According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So there's a contrast here between David's great sin and God's great love. On the one hand, David says, I've transgressed, I crossed the line, I sin, I missed the mark. But he doesn't say, forgive me God because of what a nice guy I am, or forgive me God and I promise to try to do better from now on. No, he says, forgive me because of your great love, because of your great compassion, because of your great mercy. You're my only hope, God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. David knows his sin. You know your sin. And David brings it to God in prayer. He says, God, I'm utterly sinful. You know it and I know it too. I am that man. And I can't get my sin out of my mind. And I know that I've hurt other people with my sin, but my sin was primarily disobedience against you. David says, I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I'm no good at laundry, never have been. I don't do the laundry in our house, mostly because if I do, the odds are good that I'll either send a pen through the wash, I'll end up shrinking all the clothes, or I'll turn all the whites pink. And let me tell you, once you turn the whites pink, they ain't ever gonna be white again. And your sin is a stain that you can't wash away. But the good news is that no matter how big your sin is, God's grace is always bigger. And God would be right to judge you. He would be right to punish you for what you did. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You are that man. But the blood of Jesus can wash you clean. In the 1700s, Frederick the Great was the king of Prussia. And one day he was walking through one of the prisons there in his kingdom. And as he walked down the corridor, cell after cell, each inmate, one after the other, protested his innocence to the king. So finally, King Frederick came to the last cell and he looked at the prisoner and he said, what about you? What are you in for? And the prisoner said, armed robbery. King Frederick said, well, I suppose you're innocent too. The prisoner just said, no, I'm guilty and I fully deserve my punishment. Well, upon hearing this, King Frederick turned to the warden and he said, release this guilty man. I won't have him in here corrupting all these innocent people. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the paradox of the good news, the gospel of God's grace, that when we confess our crime, we are granted our freedom, that when we admit our guilt to the king, we can receive the grace of the king, that only when we come clean are we made clean. And how are we cleansed? Verse seven, you saw it. David says, cleanse me with hyssop. Well, what in the world does that mean? Hyssop was this small little plant that when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God commanded them to take hyssop and to dip it in the blood of a lamb and to paint the blood on the doorposts of their homes and it would save them from death. And later on in the law, God instructed that a priest would dip some hyssop either in blood or in water and he would use it to cleanse a leper, to purify them. So how are we cleansed? Well, Jesus came and and he touched lepers with his hands and he cleansed them and he purified the sick. And Jesus came as a perfect spotless lamb who was slain and it's in his blood that we are saved from death. That's how we're cleansed. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So David is begging God here not just to forgive his sin, but to make in him a new heart. Don't you want that? I do. I look in the eyes of my eight-month-old son, and I want what he has. I want to see the world with the joy and the wonder and the trust and the purity that he sees the world with. But I can't fix my heart on my own. It's going to take a miracle to do that. And so this verb here at the beginning of verse 10, create, create in me a clean heart, that's the same word that describes what God did at the beginning of time when he created the world from nothing. In other words, your sin has so totally corrupted you that you need God to come inside and to make a new heart for you, a heart like his, a heart that loves what he loves and hates what he hates. And the irony is that it's only when you become nothing that God can create in you something. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, a lot of people don't like coming to church because they feel like they get beat up when they do. They feel like they come here and we just smack them all over the head about how bad they are and how guilty they are. And the, and the church is guilty of that sometimes. You having a pretty good day today? Come to church, we'll fix that. <laughs> and yet there is no greater joy than being fully known, darkness and all, and fully loved anyway. That's the joy of salvation, the joy of coming to Jesus and giving him your guilt and letting him make you good again. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David says, give me a willing spirit, willing to confess and repent and obey, and then I'm gonna teach everybody how to turn back to you. And that's the only reason that I can stand up here today and teach. It's not because I'm perfect. It's because I'm a sinner. A sinner who's actively confessing and repenting. A sinner forgiven and loved by God. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. You know, God can use your broken heart. God loves using broken people. Adam had marriage problems. Noah was prone to getting drunk. Abraham wife swapped, Joseph was a slave and a jailbird, Moses was a stuttering murderer, Gideon was a coward, Elijah was prone to depression, Joseph, or excuse me, Jonah was a self-righteous snob and a sneak, Peter was a traitor, Paul was a persecutor, and God used all of them, and God even used the son of David and Bathsheba, a guy named Solomon, to bring his own son into the world. Did you know that Bathsheba was the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus? You're never too far gone for God to use you when you actively confess and repent. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If we're being honest, it seems like a little bit of a weird way to end the psalm, doesn't it? What David's talking about, though, is he's saying, restore me, forgive me, and then restore us as the community of faith, as we actively confess and repent, find joy in us, bless us, use us, restore us to proper worship. And so that's what we're gonna do today. Can you imagine if we did this as a church, if we became a community of people that prayed our guilt? Can you imagine the freedom that we would find from our sin 
Can you imagine the security that we would live with knowing that we are forgiven and loved? Can you imagine if we have received God's grace so abundantly, how abundantly we would give that same grace to each other? We would give it so freely that our families would notice and our workplace would notice and this church would notice and those places would all be transformed because the truth of the matter is you're only as sick as your secrets and you're only as healthy as your confession. So today we're gonna confess that we, like David, are guilty of murder. That our sin, like David's, means that an innocent man had to die, Jesus. And we've got his blood on our hands and only his blood can make us clean. So some of you in here today have a check engine light glowing on the dashboard of your heart. Don't ignore it. Don't say, nah, I'm good. Maybe later. Now's the time. When you walked in here today, you found a block of wood on your seat. This block symbolizes your sin. And today, you're going to have an opportunity to confess your sin and to have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ spoken over you by some of our elders. If you're not a baptized follower of Jesus yet, then I want you to come talk to us about that. Put that on your connection card. Steve's gonna be up here up front. Come forward after the service. Come in the next songs. Talk to us because there is no forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ. Even if you do this little exercise and you confess your sin, you are not forgiven until you are covered in the blood of Jesus and baptized into his death and resurrection. That's the most important decision of your life. So don't put it off another day. But if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you have been baptized and forgiven, Perhaps there's still some sins you need to confess, some secrets in your heart that you need to let out. And today you can come and you can confess your sin in the confidence that in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So I want you to take your piece of wood here in the coming songs. I want you to take it to one of the crosses in the four corners of the room. You can go to any one of them. And you're gonna hand your sin this block of wood to one of our elders and they're gonna nail it to the cross to remind you that the penalty for your sin has been paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we're not gonna pass communion today like we normally do. You'll see that the communion trays are on tables over there by those crosses. So when your sin is nailed to the cross, you go take communion. The body of Jesus that was shredded for you, the blood of Jesus that was poured out for you, taste his grace. You don't have to confess your specific sins today. If you feel led to do so, then by all means, go ahead. But I want you to come. You're only as sick as your secrets. So today, right now, come and confess and embrace his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, I am, so sinful. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight and you would be right to judge us for it. And yet instead, your wrath was poured out on your son and he absorbed the punishment on our behalf so that we could experience freedom. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do its work of convicting in this room right now that if there are those who are living in the grip of secret sin, that you would empower them with the boldness to come and to confess today and to embrace the freedom that you give and that you would bring health and life into their hearts and you'd heal them from their sickness. And Father, for all of us, we ask that you would create in us clean hearts 
Renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. And then we will go, we will teach transgressors your ways. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your grace. It's our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.